Listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Today's reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would give us grace to tremble at your ways, to tremble at the presence of God in our midst. We pray that each one of us would realize afresh that you are in the middle of all that we're, we are and all that we do, that, Lord, you are working out your purposes, that There is no little thing in our lives. There is no little life. There is no little occurrence. We pray that we would have a fresh understanding of the fact that even in the very worst things that happen to us, that God is working out a glorious plan for us, for others, for His kingdom, for the church, for His glory. Oh, Lord, we confess that we just completely lose perspective so many times. We confess that we live many hours of the day, sometimes days upon end, as though there is no God, immersed in worry like a blackout that has occurred to our faith, like a city that suddenly has lost its lights. We seem to have no capacity to recognize your goodness, to see the cross itself shining into our darkness. Oh, Lord, we pray. Speak to us by your Spirit. Enliven us. Lord, open up our hearts to understand in this glorious, simple story, the working of God, not only in their lives, but in each of our lives. We thank you, Lord, that we are your children We thank you that all of our days are ordained and they are ordained to the end that you will always 
work things for good in our lives. Grant us faith to believe it and see it. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, This book of Ruth that we're launching into this morning is one of the most beautiful and finely crafted stories in all of ancient literature. And there's no doubt people just love this story. Uh, We love it because it is a love story. We really can't get enough love stories. Every year, more books are poured out that are love stories. More movies are poured out about love stories. And and this certainly is one of the best ones ever written. We also like Ruth because it is a story about tragedy among everyday people. And a story about how this tragedy was resolved in their lives. We can identify with Naomi's heart-rending loss so bluntly stated in these opening paragraph, this opening paragraph, and we can identify with her cry that is later poured out in this chapter as she says that the Almighty has dealt bitterly with her. It doesn't mean that she's bitter about what has happened, but she recognizes that bitter things, hard things to understand, bitter to my soul, these things that have happened to me, that God has brought on to me. So it gets right down into the middle of the hard things of our lives. But it also encourages us because there is a fulfillment in the end of this book. In Dean Ulrich's commentary, he entitles it, From Famine to Fullness. And so, while it takes us to depths, it is a book that gives us hope. That's another reason we we like it. We like this book, too, because it shows how God is in the midst of the simple, ordinary events in our lives. The worst events in our lives, and the best events, but just... Ordinary, everyday events. There are no obvious miracles in this story. There is no big intervention by God in some visible way. There's no communication from God in this story. It's just everyday life, everyday things happening. And yet, in the midst of those very things, God is working out His plan And he is working her pain, Naomi's pain, for good. God is in the midst of these risky and bold decisions of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And that is encouraging. It's encouraging to know that he is in the middle of everything happening to my life. There are no accidents. We like Ruth because of the faithful love of these three main characters of Naomi and especially Ruth and Boaz. In a short story like this, the characters are not developed over time so that you kind of see it unfold, but the characters are simply revealed in a short story, like an epiphany, a a sudden revelation of who they are. And so the very first words out of Ruth's mouth are sudden and unexpected, this abrupt unveiling of her heart in verses 16 and 17. 
these words are what Bill Bennett uh, himself has said, has called one of the greatest statements of friendship and loyalty in all of literature. And interestingly, it's through uh, Ruth's faithful love and Boaz's faithful love that Naomi is restored to fullness. So it's a glorious story about people loving people. In fact, we'll see it's the very way that God manifests His love. We like Ruth because it has this surprise ending. The story of famine and death and love and loyalty that's worked out among people just like you and me, it's finally unveiled as a story about the birth of the greatest king in the Old Testament. And ultimately, it's about the greatest king who ever lived or who ever will live. So here in this simple, everyday unfolding of the life of these people as they commit to covenant love, the most glorious results that have even affected you and me occurred. So this tiny slice of life has implications for world history. And so in this little book, you might say that meaning and beauty just spill out in every direction, like grapes falling out of a basket, you know, at harvest time. You've seen a little kid in the middle of a dozen puppies, and he's trying to pick them up, and they're jumping all around him, and they're jumping on him, and it's just puppies everywhere. And this is what it's like here. It's just beauty everywhere you look. Amazing story, complex, rich, richly textured. Uh, it's like taking a safari every week as we get into Ruth. And in that sense, the story of Ruth is kind of like Snoopy's doghouse. Hadn't you always thought that? Um, <clears throat> you know, in 1958, you might not know this little fact, but in 1958 was the first time Snoopy slept on the top of his doghouse. Up to that point, he'd been sleeping inside, and you could kind of look in the doghouse, you know. Well, from 58 on, he slept on the top of the doghouse, and all you had was the side view. But that allowed Charles Schultz to let imagination run wild as to what was inside that house, right? So, uh, on the outside, it looked just, you know, like a normal little doghouse. But on the inside of it was a carpeted foyer, a den, a library, a guest room, stairway, and a basement, all in that little house. In 1964, we learned that he has a Van Gogh hanging on the wall. And after the fire destroyed the house and it had to be rebuilt and destroyed the Van Gogh, he replaced it with an Andrew Wyatt. <clears throat> so in addition, the doghouse had... Uh, Pool, uh, had bunk beds, a pool table, ping pong table, television, a mural painted by Linus on the wall, a shower, a cedar chest, a grandfather clock, and a jacuzzi. <laughs> All inside that little house. And I want to suggest to you that Ruth is like that. A tiny little book, a short story really, but it opens up into a universe of the riches of God's providence and glory. And it opens up into a glorious description of the faith of His people who live out His covenant love in everyday circumstance. It's a glorious, glorious uh, revelation from God. 
So, that's a little part of introduction to the book of Ruth. We're going to introduce different aspects of it week after week, but I don't want to just go through this huge laundry list, you know, the first time and speak of all these things in the abstract. But as we come upon them in the context and, and get our teeth sunk into them, then we're going to talk about some of the other aspects of this book. But for the rest of our time, I just want to focus on two primary themes of this book. And... Uh, these are the, I would say, and many commentators, these are the two central things that we're going to see running through the book, and I want to kind of summarize them for us. First is that God's, I've already alluded to both of them, but God's providence worked out in everyday life. God's providence worked out in everyday life. And then God's purpose worked out in everyday love. Okay? God's providence worked out in everyday life, and then God's purpose worked out in everyday love. Well, first, His his providence. Now, the way the story is set out, it's actually Naomi who is the main character of this story, even though the title is Ruth. Just for instance, she speaks twice as many words in this book as Ruth does. But the way it's structured, it it shows that she is the main character. You'll notice in the first couple of verses, it's what you would expect. It says that uh, a man named Elimelech and his wife. Notice a man and his wife, then Elimelech and his wife, Naomi. So she was only related to Elimelech. Then there is a turnaround in verse 3. And it suddenly becomes Elimelech, the husband of Naomi. He's named for the sake of Naomi. It's, it's like what happened to me for a while. You know, it used to, uh, my daughter, Anna Kate, you know, it was, this is Darwin's daughter. And then finally it became, no, this is Anna Kate's dad. Because, you know, more prominence to the children than the father. That was my identity now. I... <laughs> My identity now is that I belong to Kay. Otherwise, I have no worth uh, whatsoever. <clears throat> so, Naomi, uh, Elimelech gains his value from the fact that he happened to be Naomi's uh, husband. She now has center stage as, as he passes away. And then, uh, after that, she's never again called Naomi, wife of Elimelech. Even in the legal dealings that we'll see in chapter 4... She is simply called Naomi, who came back from Moab. That's really unheard of. It's just she stands in this way as a central character. Uh, even when Ruth is referred to later, she is the widow of Malon. Malon. We don't, we don't know how to pronounce it. Machlon in the original. Uh, but Naomi is simply uh, Naomi in that regard. Uh, also, in a, in a Hebrew story like this, a short story, the problem is laid out as it is in these first five verses. We have this blunt description in the first five verses, and then to the end of the chapter one, it's just the emotion and the discussion and the outcry about this problem. So all of chapter one is the presentation of the problem, and then the rest of the book is the resolution of this problem with some obstacles that come up along the way before the final resolution. But you see in verse 5, the problem is from her perspective. The woman 
was left without her two sons and her husband. There's the essence of the problem. She's in a world in which attachment to men was absolutely necessary because all privilege and power and and wealth was, was connected to them. And yet she was without her two sons and her husband. That's the contrast in verse 3. She was left with her two sons, then without her sons or her husband. And so the story is all about her and the resolution is all about her. In the end of this book, when uh, Boaz and Ruth have a child, it's spoken of as a blessing for Naomi. And this is an interesting note. When it says in verse 5 that she was left without her two sons, hardly any translation really gives you what's being said here. This is the only time the Hebrew word yelet, which means youth or child, is used to describe grown married men like this. And there's almost the feel of, you know, how a mother or even a father, mother especially, would, in the loss of her son might even cry out, my baby, my baby, you know, thinking of the baby that you held and now he's gone. So there's some of that feel. But the real, real point is this gives you kind of the first part of what they call an inclusio, that, that is the first half of what, where the story ends. And the story ends uh, in verse 16 of chapter 4, Naomi took the yellet and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. So you see, the story is saying she lost her children. And then later, the whole story is about Naomi got her child. He, was, she, he restored to her a child. So this is a story about her loss and her restoration. But in this story, unlike the stories of Abraham and the patriarchs, there are no appearances from God. There are no visions. There are no words spoken between God and any of these characters. And unlike the story of Moses, there are no miracles. There are no, there's no cloud by day or fire by night, no manna, no water gushing from a rock. Or, or you think of the miracles with, that surrounded Elijah and Elisha. None of that here. Just everyday life. And yet it's understood that God's right in the midst of that everyday life working out His purposes. And that's what's so encouraging to us. What happens when the bottom completely falls out and we lose everything and we have a tragedy or a turnaround? Our life is turned upside down more than we could have ever imagined. And you know, it never crossed her mind when she had a husband and two sons that one day you won't have a husband and both of your sons will die. She probably never even heard of that ever happening to anybody. And yet it happened to her. What happens when life throws you eight more punches than you ever thought it could have thrown you? And that's what this is about. And then how things are restored through the faithful love of people in everyday life. You do have the perspective of the narrator. You notice it in verse 6. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. And so the narrator is indicating his faith in Yahweh. That's the the covenant name of God, Yahweh, in verse 6. And then later in verse in chapter 4, verse 13, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. There's the narrator 
giving his view of all of these things as he describes them. Even though there's not an overt uh, entrance of God, it's as though God is uh, off stage, as, as though God is uh, showing himself uh, you know, behind the scenes all along the way. But he is, it is assumed that every single bit of this is controlled absolutely by Yahweh. And the people themselves constantly recognize him, either as in verses 8 and 9 of this chapter, where she says, May Yahweh deal kindly with you. May Yahweh grant that you may find rest. Uh, to even her recognition that it was Yahweh that did this to me. That's a hard confession, but she doesn't turn away from it. She doesn't doubt it. That Not that God had his back turned on me, not that God has nothing to do with these kinds of things. No, the God, that God, Yahweh, brought this about in my life. Recognizing the absolute sovereignty of God in all of these events. And of course, later, uh, as Boaz and Ruth make statements, they all concern God's sovereignty in all circumstance. But his involvement is as I said, behind the scenes, in the shadows, just like it is with us. Because so often you just ask the question, where is God in the middle of this? I've not heard him say anything. I can't see any overt sign. In fact, everything that happens to me, it sure looks like there is no God doing anything. He's not watching out for me. These are bad things happening to me. And I can't see God's kindness in it. That's the very thing that happened with Ruth. Interesting, you get little hints though, like in chapter 2, verse 1, when he introduces Boaz. Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Limelech, whose name was Boaz. Then Ruth asked Naomi, let me go to the field and glean. And so she goes in verse 3. She set out, went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And of course, we're all to understand, ah, anything can happen in a world of chance. No, we don't say that. Um, That this was God's plan in just the circumstances that occurred. She's just out in the field gleaning, happens to end up in the field of Boaz. And brothers and sisters... That's what must encourage us in all the events of our lives, that God is orchestrating, God is working, God is bringing about His goodwill. Ours is to continue to be faithful and to love Him and to give ourselves up to His will so that we can continue to be instruments in His hands in the midst of all the things that we are brought through. So that in all the, that happens in our life, His plan is working. His plan was working in their meeting in chapter 2. He was working in this nighttime uh, meeting on the threshing floor and how it turned out. He was working through the legal uh, deals that were occurring in chapter 4 all the way to bring about the glorious uh, issue of this baby uh, by Ruth that then was, was a blessing to Naomi and even... Uh, finally issued in the birth of David the king. So with us, in even the most crippling loss, God is at work. Nothing is left to chance. All is a part of his plan. 
And as you see that this simple story issues in the very birth of David, God is always working in our lives to do something larger than we can imagine. He's always working in concert with the people of God so that our feeble efforts of love and service and ministry and proclamation of the gospel and faithfulness in the smallest areas of life, he says, even a cup of cold water will not go unnoticed. There's no insignificant thing that you do. There is nothing that will not redound to his glory and be a part of accomplishing what he is doing in this world. And so, in our setting, and each time we deal with something, we want to kind of look at it from New Testament glasses, but in the New Testament, we have all the more reason to believe this because the cross of Jesus is the measure of His concern and love for us. And so, Paul says, if He gave His Son, He's going to do all good things for us. And so, we have a visible testimony in the midst of our suffering The God who gave His Son is the one who rules. The cross rules my life. The same love of the cross is involved in bringing about these things in my life. And in the New Testament, it will work to always, as it says, to final conformity to Christ, growing my character, enabling me to manifest more of the love of God, making Christ known through the sacrifice of our love. Uh, sacrifice of our lives. As John 13 and 17 speak of the love of Christ showing itself in this, this world. And another thing I want to say that kind of pushes us even further because here in Ruth there is a physical redemption. There's a, there's a physical fulfillment in, in terms of the loss at the beginning. But for us, Many of the promises of God have to do with, yes, I will be with you, I will be in your midst, but you may die in the process of serving me. You may die on the mission field. You may die unexpectedly. You may suffer in ways that even these people didn't suffer. And you may not see any complete physical resolve, but the new heavens and the new earth await you. You see, many times in the Old Testament, it's a little microcosm of both suffering and final fulfillment in heaven, even though in Ruth it happened completely on earth. We even trust Him all the way to to saying, Lord, whatever I may lose in this life, I know that You will give me in the next life, and I will ultimately lose nothing. So, we await the final realization of God's grace in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Ruth can help us in that regard, this book of looking to say, even as he brought this most perfect, glorious fulfillment in her life, so he will do for us in every aspect of our life. There's not a part of our being that will not be filled with complete joy and 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 shalom and wholeness by the final grace of God that will come to us. But just to touch on this at the end, it's not only God's providence worked out in everyday life, but this is an amazing thing in Ruth. It's God's purposes worked out in everyday love. 
one of the central purposes, maybe the thing that's foremost in, in Ruth, right alongside of showing the providence of God, is to show the character of these people. To show the glorious character of these people. And, and the term that's used several times is that same word, uh, kesed. That's kind of an English translation, you know, in the Hebrew, it's chesed. But we just would laugh if we said that all the time, right? Chesed. But so I was just say kind of an English translation, C-H-E-S-E-D. It's that word that is used so many times in scriptures where you have that formula saying, God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's like the central covenant characteristic of God, abounding and overflowing in this steadfast love, covenant, committed love, a love that is faithful, a love that will not turn away, a love that will hold us throughout this life and all eternity. That steadfast love is celebrated throughout the Psalms. You just see it over and over again. Sometimes in one Psalm, it'll be said in every verse. Psalm 36 just repeated, His steadfast love is everlasting. His steadfast love is everlasting. This speaks of the steadfast love of God, but it especially speaks of the chesed love, the chesed love of people for one another. And that's the glory, that's one of the glorious things about this, this book. This breakout in verse 16 of Ruth's love. The first thing we know anything about, we have gotten this in verse 14, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, indicates she kissed her and left. And it says, Ruth clung to her. She would not let her go, she clung to her. And she tries to urge her, go back, go back. Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She takes the curse upon herself. May I be cursed if I don't follow you till my dying day. I don't know if there could be any greater statement of the covenant love of God from one person to another. And it's held out to us as the example that we're to live out. That in fellowship with this God, this Kessid God, this God of such remarkable, faithful love, His people, His people's faith in that God and relationship and intimacy to that God shows itself in the way they commit themselves to one another. They look just like God on a horizontal plane, on a a finite plane, loving each other with this kind of covenant love. So this outburst, and then in the spilling out of the story, you see her actions back it up at every point along the way. Then enters Boaz, and he shows a covenant love. He shows a mercy and commitment that go beyond what one would expect. Ruth cries out in chapter 2, verse 10, falling on her face, bowing, saying, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? How could you show such love? Or verse 13, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you've comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. How can this be? 
that you're showing such love to me. Ruth is praised for her Kessid love in the book. She's even held up in the end because of this uh, faithful covenant love. The women say, she is more to you, chapter 4, verse 15, than seven sons. That's a remarkable statement, seeing the value of the birth of sons. And seven is a perfect number. She says, no number of sons could begin to add up to Ruth. Why? Because of her love. Because of verses 16 and 17 and the living out of that committed love to Naomi. In chapter 2, verse 20, it speaks of the Lord's kindness manifested through Boaz. And what's interesting is Orpah doesn't do anything really wrong to Naomi by going back. It's really what you would expect. It's what's normal. What, I mean, go back to your people, find security. You know, I'm going back and who knows what's going to happen to me. It's only reasonable that you would go back. But you see, Kesed doesn't work that way. Kesed goes way beyond what you would expect to lay down its life for the other. The same thing with uh, what one commentator calls the, the, the redeemer of first right. You know, when she approaches Boaz and basically asks him to marry her and take her under his wing, he says, well, I will, but there's another that has a prior right to this than I do, and I need to honor that. And you never even hear his name. And when he hears all the details that, whoa, 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 wait, you mean if I get the land, I'm going to have to get this Moabite and have her as my wife? Eh. I don't think I will. He doesn't do anything wrong to her, really. It's kind of expected. He doesn't want to go out on a limb. He doesn't want to endanger his own rights and property and all of this thing. Um, but as one guy pointed out, he's Mr. What's-His-Name in the, in the passage. You don't even know who he is. But Boaz takes the responsibility. He lays himself out, does whatever is necessary to redeem Ruth and Naomi and And whatever loss he may incur, he sacrifices it all to fulfill this cassid love. And so it is a gracious act, a generous act beyond all expectations. That's the kind of love. And it is involved in every aspect of life because every move Ruth makes, it's because of this love. And here's what I want to leave you with. The problem of her loss in chapter 1, verse 5, is not solved by some over-intervention of God. God solves the problem by the love of His people in her life. Isn't that amazing? That God brings shalom and restoration through the love of, of, of Ruth and Boaz. That's what he calls us to do. Several commentators point out the fact that God acts through their actions. Their actions are the cassid love of God lived out in everyday life. One remarkable picture of this is in chapter 2, verse 12, when Boaz says, The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. Then, in chapter 
3, verse 9, when she comes and gets under the covers, okay? He says, who, he wakes up and he says, who are you? And she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Or she's at his feet. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. The very wings that Boaz speaks of, that you've come for, to come under the wings of the Almighty, it's accomplished through his own act of love for her. That's a remarkable thing that you and I can be a part of in our lives. The remarkable Kessid love that God has for us that is manifested to one another. And if what several men think in, in their study of this, this book, it looks like it was written toward, though the, obviously the story had existed for years, uh, but written down in this form toward the end of, of Judah right before the exile. The, the language points to that. And listen to some of the things that were being said by the prophets because of the breakdown of society and the judgment that was falling. Hear the word of the Lord, Hosea says in chapter 4, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Hosea 6, six, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea 10.12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Hosea 12.6, by the help of your God, return, hold fast to steadfast love and justice. And then the one we're most familiar with, he's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love steadfast love and to walk humbly with your God. What a message would Ruth be. This is what Kessid looks like in everyday life. And that little added oomph of saying, it issued in the very birth of David. If we're concerned about David's reign, the, the king's reign, and we're concerned about the restoration of Israel, and brothers and sisters, if we're concerned about the health of the church, we need to think, Kessid love, the love of God. And how much more again can we experience this of God because that love has been shown magnificently in the purpose, a person of Jesus Christ. He has shown the loving kindness of God in a way we never could have imagined, laying down His life for His people. And so as we saw even recently in 2 Corinthians, we now live no longer for ourselves but for Him. We are captured by His love and we are made lovers. We are made living examples of that cursed love. May God bring it about in our lives. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can not only know that you are at work in every aspect of our lives, bringing about your ends, your glory, accomplishing the extension of your kingdom and your church, building us up in Christ using us in each other's lives, but that, Lord, that will 
in the midst of even the worst things in our life, that we have this glorious calling to manifest the steadfast love of God, the very committed love of God shown in Jesus Christ, that it is our privilege and because of the new life that we have in Christ, your spirit dwelling in us, we can live out that love to one another. Lord, we confess to you that our love is not steadfast. We confess to you that our love can die in a moment, that our love is up and down, that when we're not treated well, we find it almost impossible many times to love, that our love is so dependent, it is not rooted so often in your love, that we want to be forgiven by you and to be, for you to forbear uh, with our sins and to be patient toward our sins and then we turn around and don't even think about doing that for others. Oh Lord, we pray that we will manifest the, the glorious love of Jesus Christ, that we will walk in that joy and that freedom. If we see it in these people in the Old Testament setting, Lord, it, it encourages us to expect what will God do for us in Christ? What will you do for us in Christ? Oh, Lord, enable us in these weeks and months to come to search our hearts and to conform our ways to Jesus by the mighty power of your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. My Lord, my life, my light Oh, come with blissful rain Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away? Then shall my soul with rapture trace 